The scripture this morning is from Mark, chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. Then they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is the word of the Lord. Loneliness. I invite you to take a moment and think of a time in your life when you felt most alone. Those are often extremely difficult but also pivotal moments in our lives. We begin with the Garden of Gethsemane this morning, and Dr. Barnett's sermons over the next two weeks will lead us through Mark's account of the crucifixion and the resurrection. But this morning, we're still in the season of Lent, and I invite you to join with me as we enter into these 11 verses. I think they have something powerful to teach us about a desperate loneliness. I spent some time on the internet this week trying to find uh, a painting or an artist rendering of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane that really captured the agony of Christ. And uh, unfortunately, to my dismay, I kept coming across images like this, where I had to put agony in, in quotation marks. Uh, it's, it's so serene that I find it obscene. Uh, that this is supposed to communicate uh, something to us about the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Here it looks like Jesus might have just been out for a walk one morning and knelt down and pondering how great life is. Uh, We see this ray of light coming down, and he, of course, has the glow uh, letting us know he's he's still holy, he's still divine. Uh, I don't think it does justice to the reality of of the garden scene. Uh, Another image that, that I came across was was this one, and there are a lot of images out there of angels um, tending to Jesus. And after reading through all the different gospel accounts, um, I was reminded that Luke does mention an angel coming to Jesus and strengthening him in this time, but I will bet you a nickel it didn't look like that. Um, Not quite that soft or sweet. You know, every time we're told about angels appearing in Scripture, the first thing they say is what? Do not be afraid, which tends us, you know, leads us to believe that, that it might be a, a fearful thing to behold an angel. That's not a very fearful angel to me. Um, <clears throat> but I came across uh, a picture 
And this is from uh, J. Mark Lawson, who's a pastor in New York. He's the founder of New York School of Ministry. Uh, and he, he references this picture that, that he took <clears throat> excuse me, when he was on a trip to the Holy Land. Uh, he had actually took the picture and then forgotten about it, and later he was writing on his blog. He was doing a little piece about the Garden of Gethsemane, and he thought, okay, well, I'll go on Google Images and I'll find a picture. And he, he had the same uh, realization that I did, that it, just about everything that's on there is just falls woefully short uh, of capturing the true agony of that um, scene. Lawson writes, They usually picture Jesus either with a look of serenity or being accompanied by an angel or bathed in a bright beam of heavenly light, and they fail to do justice to the depth of Jesus' spiritual pain in that moment. This is a picture uh, actually where scholars believe that the Garden of Gethsemane was located. There's a church there now. It's called Church of of All Nations. Uh, It's called that because a a lot of churches from different countries put put money together to build this church in this place. It's also known as the Church of the Agony. Um, He had taken this picture of this carving in stone, and here's what he says about it. As you can see from my photograph, the weight of Jesus' burden is so great that he cannot even lift his head as he prays. His entire body is sinking into the earth, his garment appearing as a Van Gogh-esque wave of anxiety passing over the stone where Jesus is clasped his hands. I think that is a more powerful rendering of what was going on in the garden. And Lawson goes on to quote a German theologian, uh, Dorothy Soule, who in her book suggests that the depth of Jesus' passion was actually reached in Gethsemane uh, rather than on the cross, since it was in the agony of anticipation that Jesus wrestled to relinquish all control and accept the pain of suffering. And she argues that by the time Jesus was arrested and taken away, though certainly the cross was was uh, there was physical suffering involved uh, that the spiritual suffering and wrestling with his fate happens in in the garden and I think uh, makes a very good point for that and we think of Luke's uh, passage where it says that Jesus' sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground the anticipation of the suffering the anticipation of the cross of the arrest and the uh, the, the pseudo-trial and the, the beatings and the mocking and all of that. And we can, we can connect to this on some point. There, there's been an instance in your life where you were in preparation for something that was unpleasant. You probably suffered more in the waiting and in the not knowing exactly how that thing was going to turn out. You may have gotten some bad news at work and you were... Uh, in, in preparation of that, the anxiety and stress can actually be more difficult. Or say a loved one is near the end of life. It can be more difficult to watch them suffer and, and go through those last days than actually it is to experience the finality of death. So we know something about this anticipation of suffering that can be actually uh, very difficult as well. I want to back up a little bit and look at a verse in Mark chapter 8. It's probably a verse that you're familiar with where Jesus lets us know what it is we need to do if we want to follow him. He boils this down very succinctly. Mark eight thirty four. he says, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
And I think normally when we think about that verse, we tend to focus on, okay, we're supposed to carry our cross. Carry your cross. If you want to follow after Jesus, you have to carry your cross. I would like to place the emphasis on the first step that Jesus mentioned, and that was deny yourself. And you can see in parentheses we put garden work. Without Gethsemane, I think it's theologically appropriate to say you can't get to Golgotha. The garden must precede the cross and is the first work in following Jesus. There would be no crucifixion of the body until Jesus resigns himself in the garden that this is the path that he must take, the cup that he must drink, as he says it. Mark 15, 21 tells us that after Jesus' arrest, they're on the way to the crucifixion. You may remember this part of the story where Jesus is just so physically depleted that they pull someone out of the crowd, Simon of Cyrene, and force him to carry the cross. And uh, the clip that we watched earlier was from The Passion, and there's a, that's a, a powerful moment in that film as well. And you can imagine that you would have to be forced to carry someone else's cross. We don't pause to think about the, the, the scope of that, but let's think about forms of execution that are more known to us. Would you want to sit down in an electric chair and just let us adjust the straps and just see if it, if it fits? You don't want to do that. That's taking a step toward your own uh, death. And so Simon did not want to even carry this cross for a little while. He didn't want to get to the top of the hill and there be some confusion and he becomes the one who ends up being crucified on the cross. He wants to make sure it's clear, this is Jesus' cross, not my cross. And in the same way for us, if we haven't spent time in the garden, if we haven't done the garden work of denying ourselves, we stand very little chance of carrying our cross and following after Jesus. There's a tension in the Gospel of Mark. I want to zoom out for just a second and and talk about this reality. Um, Mark's Gospel says over and over that Jesus was, that he was lonely, that he was alone, that he withdrew to solitary places. And yet always in, in the next breath, Mark reminds us that there were always many people who were in pursuit of Jesus. It wasn't that he couldn't find any friends, nobody wanted to hang out with him. It's that there was, a, there was a soul level kind of loneliness as he set his face toward Jerusalem. Uh, Mark 1.45 captures this, this perfectly. It says, because of Jesus' growing reputation as a teacher and a healer, people were learning about him and they were pursuing him. They wanted to see him. And it says that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet, the people still came to him from everywhere. There's this tension, this paradox of lots and lots of people, and yet Jesus is alone. He's, he's lonely. If we back up just a few verses, in chapter 1, Mark tells us, Jesus got up early in the morning and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. You go to chapter 2, verse 13. Jesus went out beside the lake, and a large crowd came to him. Chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. Verse 20, also in chapter 3. Jesus entered a house, and a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples 
were not even able to eat. Chapter 4, there was a crowd so large by the lake that Jesus got in the boat to teach so that he could have some distance between himself and the crowd. Chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus crossed the lake. A large crowd gathered around him. Chapter 5, verse 31, you remember this story where there's a large crowd pressing in around Jesus and a woman who'd been sick for a long time works her way through the crowd and she has the faith and she reaches out to touch his cloak, just believing that coming in contact with him would have healing power. And she, she does this and Jesus realizes something has happened, something, something spiritual, not just physical, and he, he stops and he says, someone touched me. And it's almost comical. The disciples say, well, yeah, you're, you're, there's, people are pressing in on us. Yes, you're being touched. What are you talking about? But he meant beyond the everybody reaching in just to press in on him, it was crowded that a woman had reached out to touch him in faith. And perhaps you've experienced where you might be in a crowd. You might have people all around you, and yet uh, there are times where we can still feel very alone. The NIV commentary for this passage basically says uh, we could look at Gethsemane in, in two large sections and kind of understand the entire story. First, we have the Gethsemane of Jesus, verses 32 to 36, and we'll just run through these quickly, but a psychological anguish before his physical suffering, or as part of. I said the garden work has to be done before the cross work, but you could probably make an argument that the cross work begins in the garden. That that is where, that that's where it's born, that surrendering. Of course, he uses the term Abba, an intimate address met by dreadful silence from heaven. Uh, one quote from the commentary says, His prayer does not try to run counter to the Father's purpose, but explores the limits of the purpose without trying to burst its bounds. Might there be another way? The cup represents God's wrathful judgment, or at least it refers to Jesus' death and his suffering. Instead of being delivered from death, he'll be delivered through death and glorified by the resurrection. And the last is an important point, because many times throughout history when someone has felt that their physical life was in jeopardy, what, what the, the acceptable, normal path of behavior is, is that you, you flee you know, we talk about fight or flight, but if you don't have to fight, normally flight is, is a pretty good option if your life is in danger. And so Jesus could have gone out of the garden that night and tried to physically escape this, this cup, but he doesn't do that. The commentary says we can take, so we've got the Gethsemane of Jesus and we also have the Gethsemane of the disciples, verses 37 to 42. And this is such an important point. As you read back through this passage, and I invite you to spend some time this week, just go back and read through these 11 verses, good Lenten text for us. Um, but we, we, we think about the Garden of Gethsemane, and we always talk about, well, yes, this, this prayer that Jesus said, this three-part prayer that Jesus said, Father, I know all things are possible for you. Um, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will. We know those, those three parts of this prayer. And we kind of focus on, well, Jesus spent this time in the garden praying and, and surrendering his will. And sometimes we overlook the fact that apparently it was very important to him, important enough that he stopped the time of prayer and go asleep and uh, it, it's late at night and they're, they're tired, just physically weak. And so he, had, he, you know, he, he kind of rebukes them and says, even calls uh, Peter Simon instead of using the, the rock name, he calls him Simon, which is unusual, he doesn't do that. 
much anymore. So he says, you know, stay awake. I need you. Pray. Keep watch. Uh, Gregorite, it's a strong word for, for, you know, stay with me. Keep watch. And it wasn't keep watch for the bad guys. It was just enter into this with me. You know, have empathy. Share this burden with me. And then, of course, the text says he goes back and he he prays the same thing. Returns to his disciples, right? Finds them sleeping again. And then the text doesn't even say he goes back to praying. It just implies that he goes back to praying because the very next verse says, a third time he returned to his disciples. The emphasis is on, I'm I'm coming back to you, inviting you to join me in this painful struggle in this prayer. And of course, the disciples are not able to do that. You remember the story where uh, they're in the boat and Jesus fell asleep and the disciples, there's a storm and the disciples become very afraid. They go down and wake him up. Master, you know, there's a terrible storm. We're going to die. You've got to wake up and save us. And he rebukes them and he says, this isn't a crisis. You know, it's fine. Don't, don't have faith. You know, we're not going to drown out here in the lake. But when Jesus was actually in a very real crisis, they were the ones who fell asleep. When he awakens them the second time, the scripture says they don't know what to say. Uh, it's not too often that they're speechless, but the transfiguration was a time when they were speechless. The writer of the commentary says they were dumb in the face of Jesus' glory, and now they're numb in the face of his anguish. Only prayer enables one to answer the call. The disciples slept instead of praying, and this is great. And when they finally rise, they go off in every direction but the one that Jesus leads. And this is a spiritual truth for us. If we are spiritually sleepy, if we are not at the hard work of prayer, and we're just spiritually asleep, then when when something happens that rouses us up and and surprises us and catches us off off guard spiritually, we'll jump up and we'll run in every direction except the one that Jesus happens to be leading us in, which is, of course, the only direction that we ought to be pursuing. C.S. Lewis has a great quote uh, from The Great Divorce that you may be familiar with. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Jesus chooses Obedience. He chooses to do the difficult but right thing. Let me ask this question. Why does Jesus say in verse 37, could you not keep watch for one hour? Why specify the time unless the time is specific? I don't know why if he'd been gone for five minutes that he would come back and say, can't you stay awake for one hour? I think that the scriptures give us a time frame because perhaps that is the amount of time which he had gone to pray and come back and they were asleep. What we have in text is, is a, the theme of his prayer. It's not as, I don't believe it's his verbatim prayer. It takes 20 seconds to read that three-part prayer. But he's laboring over this. He ends in the place of, thy will be done, not mine. I don't think he starts there. I think he genuinely painfully labors over this. Apparently, the only thing that was worth interrupting that time of prayer was the return to his disciples to try to find some strength, some comfort from those core three, Peter, 
James, and John. The desperation of Christ's loneliness is a common temptation. Jesus says, watch and pray lest you enter temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Is Jesus saying more here than it appears, which he often does? Because the, the, the superficial reading of this would, would lend itself to believing that he's just making a, a comment on the fact that they can't stay awake. Well, maybe your spirit must be willing, but your body is weak. Perhaps Jesus is telling us something about himself in these words. Is his own flesh weak? Certainly the words that, that the gospel writers use to describe Jesus would, would make us think so that he is troubled, that he is deeply distressed, that he is exceedingly sorrowful, that he falls to the ground. Luke and John specify face down to the ground. Is Christ tempted here? The the video clip from, from the Passion would certainly lend itself toward that. We know that Jesus was familiar with temptation. He was tempted in the desert after his baptism to begin his ministry. Perhaps he is also tempted here in the garden. And here there is no voice of the Father coming down. There is no dove-like dissension of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 2.18 tells us this, because Jesus himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because Jesus has suffered through loneliness, abandonment, he is able to help us when we suffer through loneliness. He suffered the loneliness of humanity, a feeling that we'll all share at some point But Christ also suffered more deeply. He suffered an abandonment, a loneliness of the divine, something that you and I do not have to endure because he did it for us. We have the assurance that the Spirit of God will never leave us or forsake us. As members of one body, we need to stay connected to that body and find encouragement from that ministry. Find peace in knowing that we have a purpose that is good and holy. We have value because we're made in the image of God. He's blessed us and called us into his family. Keith has just concluded a Tuesday morning Bible study by Ray Vanderlyn, who wrote a book that, that went along with this study called The Path to the Cross. The last 30 pages of that book actually deal with the Garden of Gethsemane. Keith has extra copies of that book if you would like to look at it. Great book. Really looks at the historical context of, of, uh, of Jesus' path to the cross. One of the interesting things that Vanderlyn uh, notes is uh, possible parallels between Adam and Eve and their experience in the garden and Jesus and his experience in the garden of Gethsemane. Three things that he just touches on very quickly. Both of these events altered the course of human history. Both events related to obeying God. Both events include temptation to avoid God's difficult path of obedience. The primary difference is Adam and Eve, they chose or idolized, we might even say, the wrong kind of community. They listened and followed the leadership of the serpent, not the instruction they had been given from God. And if in that moment, if just Adam or Eve, either or, had said, stop, we must be obedient to God in this matter. It's a matter of life and death. We must stop. But instead, they found 
commonality in the exact wrong thing. And that's in rebellion and disobedience. And of course, the cost of of their behavior and their action was communion with God. And shame and guilt and broken relationship came. Christ, on the other hand, chose obedience and temporarily, because of that obedience, lost community both human and divine, yet was restored to full communion with the Father and the Spirit and with His followers. The end of this passage that we're dealing with uh, this morning, verse 42, Jesus says, Arise, let us go. My betrayer is at hand. Arise, let us go. There wasn't much us left at this point. We had already been told, Jesus had said, the shepherd would, uh, would, would be struck and the sheep would all scatter. Verse 31, uh, at, the, the Lord, at the Last Supper, Peter insists emphatically that he will stay with Jesus all the way to the end, even if it means death. And that's, that, that story closes out with, and all the disciples said the same. They all assured Jesus, we'll be with you all the way to the end, no matter what. And now, Jesus is forced to be alone in His prayer. He'll be alone after His arrest, alone at trial. No legal representation there, just a lot of accusers. Alone when abused by the soldiers. Alone before the crowd as they shouted, crucify. Alone with Pilate. A crowd below, but alone on the the cross, buried alone. The resurrection wasn't just about... Jesus being alive again as an individual, he was restored to the community, and because of his resurrection, the community was restored. The us will never again be destroyed. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we give you thanks for your presence. We thank you, uh, Jesus, that you went through something that was so hard. You experienced the the, the desperation of loneliness to a depth that we cannot even imagine. But you did it for us, and we we are thankful. We ask God that you would help us in those moments where we feel very, very alone. We acknowledge that those are those are dangerous spaces. Those are places where we begin to have thoughts that we otherwise would never entertain. Lord, where we begin to question our own value and worth, doubt our purpose perhaps. God, we pray that you would remind us that your Spirit is with us and that with you and with your Spirit we have have everything. God, we pray that we would find fellowship, kinship, brothers and sisters in this congregation or in the other congregations that are represented here this morning where we could share life together. Not just the mountaintop wonderful things that we celebrate, those moments of accomplishment and joy, but that we could find fellowship in, in, the, in the valley of the shadow of death in the garden, in the hard, difficult places of suffering. Lord, we love you and we thank you for 
for what Jesus has done for us. We thank you, God, for the hope that we have in the fellowship with Jesus. We pray, O oh God, that you would help us, make us sensitive, because perhaps we are not in a season or place of loneliness, but there may be someone around us who is. And we need to give that attention. We need to be in prayer for that person, not just a passing prayer where we mention their names, but real deep prayer for that person. We need to be proactive. We need to reach out and try to connect because sometimes, Lord, when a person is in such a desperate place of loneliness, it may be that they don't have the emotional energy to do much reaching out themselves. So help us, oh God. Quicken us by your spirit that we would be sensitive to people in our lives that we need to to check in on, that we need to reach out to. And, And maybe we don't need to come and offer answers, uh, fix their problems. Maybe that's totally out of our hands, but at least we could come and sit with them and be awake and pray. And that can make all the difference in the world. Lord Jesus, you bore such an incredible burden for us. Might it have relieved it just a little bit if those disciples would have stayed awake for you that night? If they had poured out sweat like drops of blood in prayer, just like you were, maybe it would have eased your suffering just a bit. It wouldn't have changed the outcome, I don't believe, but maybe it would have ministered to you in a powerful moment. Help us to be Christ to others, to come to them in their crisis, to join them in their suffering. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.